There was a huge realization of how disconnected we have been as a country and just, you know, how removed we are from a lot of each other's stories. You know, I think you can see it sort of geographically, um, most crudely, if you look at just topographic images of, you know, various parts of South Africa, we're so divided. And so it's easy for us to not really know what's going on in the everyday lives of people who are facing, you know, extreme economic difficulties, extreme sort of political difficulties at, you know, local levels, um, provincial levels, and just all of the separations that we have make it difficult for us to even understand where people are coming from when they do act um, in really radical ways. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Brentus Foundation podcast where we talk about the biggest issues and ideas that are shaping the African continent and leverage best practice and new thinking not just on what to do but how to do it. You will learn from many practitioners, including past presidents, policymakers, researchers, policy analysts, and seasoned business people, basically the decision makers. They will share the lessons they've learned, how they've tackled some of the biggest leadership and governance challenges, and their ideas on tackling the challenges we face today. Think of this podcast as a letter to those taking up the torch on leadership today. The end result? You will understand the latest research on African development, why things are the way they are, and why Africa is where it's at today. And you get to impress your network with what you garner from these insights. You are welcome. Without further ado, let's get straight into today's episode of the Brentas Foundation Podcast. Today, I will be speaking to one of our very own here at the Brentas Foundation, Gugu. Gugu Risha holds an MSc in Philosophy and Public Policy from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Amongst other things, she is currently the Marshall Mandela Fellow here at the Brentis Foundation and recently published a short piece on averting South Africa's political crisis where she focused on the basic income grant. This was a really interesting and fascinating conversation. Let's get straight into it. Gugu, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So in case you guys missed the introduction, Gugu is a colleague of mine and a fantastic addition to the Brentus team, if I should say so myself. Um, we are honored to have you here every day. And I mean that for sure. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, to start us off, Gugu, I thought maybe it would be good to get to know you a little bit. Um, so I guess a question I wanted to start with is what comes to mind when you think about growing up in South Africa? Oh, Wow. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think, you know, growing up in South Africa is, um, it's really interesting depending, you know, it, it, it has the potential to just spark very, um, different realities, you know, mm. based on, you know, geographical areas, um, right. the kinds of cultural surroundings you have. Um, and I moved around quite a bit, so I had the pleasure of having been surrounded by just a lot of different cultural spaces. Um, mm-hmm. So I spent a little bit of time in the Eastern Cape in a rural sort of um, semi-township in the Eastern Cape, and then moved later on to um, Johannesburg, where I did my schooling. 
And so it's, yeah, I'd say very colorful um, culturally. And I lived in an area that, you know, had a very high population of, you know, African migrants. Um, So we really just grew up with a lot of dynamicness in terms of languages and food and, you know, just cultural backgrounds, you know, over and above the very colorful South African um, cultures. So that's, yeah, I think it was really, really colorful. Yeah, no, I love that. Colorful. That's definitely one word you can take away from it. What was it like? It was very colorful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thanks, Gugu. All right. So on to the topic of the day, sort of. Um, it's been a month um, since what was sort of an economic and political, I guess, chaotic situation um, that ensued in South Africa, or mm-hmm. I guess, should I say some parts of KZN and, and Hauteng. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering, as a young South African, um, or really just as Gugu, can you share some of your reflections from those few but hard days and if your thoughts about that have changed actually in the past month since then Mm. um i think what was really interesting for me about you know the past month um and witnessing the social unrest in various parts of the country um Mm. and something that came up a lot in some of the conversations i had with close friends was the importance of you know reflecting on our positions, mm-hmm. um, our positionality and our, you know, the unique perspectives that we speak from when we talk about, you know, current affairs and what's going on in different parts of the country. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there was a huge realization of, you know, how disconnected we have been as a country um, mm-hmm. and just, you know, how removed we are from a lot of each other's stories. You know, I think, you can see it sort of geographically, um, most crudely, if you look at just topographic images of, you know, various parts of South Africa, we're so divided. And so it's easy for us to not really know what's going on um, in the everyday lives of, you know, people who are facing, you know, extreme economic difficulties, um, extreme yeah. sort of political difficulties um, at, mm-hmm. you know, your local levels, um, provincial levels, and just, you know, the all of the separations that we have uh, make it difficult for us to even understand where people are coming from when they do mm-hmm. act um, in really radical ways. And so I think what was really important for me was sort of being um being cognizant of that and the limitations of my access to people's realities and taking a step back and sort of wanting to understand before responding you know and before posturing um so yeah I think I think that was one of the biggest takeaways to sort of take a step back to listen more um and I think I think I got that from the president's response as well, you know, saying that mm. we we need to show that South Africa cares. Um, yeah. 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 No, that's amazing. That's a pretty a pretty unique way of looking at things. And I was just wondering, so instead of trying to take on this path of trying to listen, trying to understand sort of the different realities of mm. different kinds of people in South Africa, are there certain things that have shocked you, things that didn't necessarily shock you, but you were like, oh, wow, that's interesting, or I didn't think about that. Are there things that have come out to you in the recent you know, month um, mm-hmm. that you found particularly interesting or insightful? Right. Um, I think, you know, something that 
was sort of at the back of my mind, but I think really came to the fore um, was the idea of both and, um, mm. and that, you know, people don't have to either act in particular ways or identify with a particular movement because of one particular issue. Um, and I think at some of the interviews of, you know, people who were involved in the unrest, um, you know, there were people who were on the one side sort of very much for the political agenda and the political reasons. Um, yeah. And there were people who said, we have no idea what these people are talking about. We don't really identify mm. with the political reasons for this. We just saw an opportunity. Um, and just, you know, seeing some of the discourse in from, you know, some of the analysts who were trying to find an answer that would be all encompassing as to why yeah. exactly are people engaging in this and it didn't have to be either or you know there was quite a big debate in terms of are people just opportunists are people yeah. you know are these uh insurrectionists you know are they political um pawns you know it was it was it was sort of interesting to see how people really wanted to find one single answer that would be satisfactory and palatable to everybody, but it didn't mm -hmm. have to be either or. It could be both and, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, that also to some extent speaks to even when we think about the broader issues that, you know, South Africa faces as a country that other African countries, when it mm. comes to trying to solve certain issues, it's never really that one thing. It could be, but exactly. it's always you know, a multitude of other factors, but people always want to know, I just need one clean box. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's never right. really simple. Yeah. All right. So you wrote in your piece um, that the recent events came as no surprise. And I think quite a number of people would agree with you. Can mm. you tell us a little bit more about why you said that or why you think that? Um. So I think, you know, one of the the main reasons I, you know, I held that view is mm -hmm. because of the the sort of bubbling tension that's always mm. just beneath the surface of, you know, South African uh, discourse on current affairs, you know, on daily yeah. life. Um, you don't have to go too far. It can just be, you know, uh, stepping into an Uber and sparking conversation with a stranger. It could be, you know, in a line and talking to somebody. There's just a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of disgruntlement. Um, and, yeah, I think the social issues, but, you know, in addition to the economic hardship that was just bubbling um, from the pandemic and, yeah. you know, the numerous lockdowns. And the frustration I think a lot of people had with not knowing, you know, not knowing what the end looks like or whether the mm -hmm. end is in sight. So mm -hmm. there's, you know, that heavy um, historical sort of yeah. hand that's con constantly lingering in the back of our interactions, you know, mm -hmm. of the difficult past that we have. But then, yeah. you know, seeing some of the immediate challenges that we have, um, it, it was sort of inevitable, you know, um, and people, I mean, we sort of see um, some of the statistics on, you know, how many people slipped back into poverty and how many people were food insecure. When you see those statistics, you sort of know at the back of your mind that there's going to be some kind of um, explosion or an implosion. Um, mm. And unfortunately, yeah, that's that's what we saw. That's what sure, we saw. Yeah. 
it's literally almost it's just like a matter of time exactly um, i'm going to read a quote um, that i found really interesting um and because i just i have no other way to put it than what you wrote so i'm just going to read it um mm -hmm. so you said many of the country's poorest are still bearing the invisible cost of apartheid through selective development and spatial inequality which imposes extreme work commuting costs uh sorry let me see which imposes extreme work, commuting costs, to poor infrastructure, services, and few unemployment opportunities for those living in townships and rural areas, mm. all of which are externalized onto the poor communities who reside there. I, <laughs> I don't personally think that, you know, in South Africa, you can understand the noun without the historical context that led to it. Mm. Uh, in South Africa, as with many other places and I think sometimes that's where the fault comes when people try to understand how to deal with that issue it always there's always threats <laughs> um, right. that go across. and I think this is what this phrasing does in some instance and so for something so unjust if I can call it that and deeply entrenched in how South, South Africa worked for a long time and I'm mm. not sure what this on where that still works at the moment but it would be interesting to hear what you think the role of justice is or should be in trying to achieve a more peaceful, a more stable and inclusive South Africa. Right. Um, so that was that was pretty much the idea. I think that was mm -hmm. the force behind writing that piece. Um, mm -hmm. And just saying, you know, we, we often talk about how do we achieve sort of peace um, and not just in sort of civil um, unrest environments, but I think on the continent, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to sort of armed um, armed struggles and, you know, civil wars and those sorts of things, sort of extreme cases of, um, of violence and instability, um, we often hear the narrative of, well, you know, we should deal with the social causes or the economic root causes. And sure, you know, economic, um, hardship has a huge role to play in terms of causing social unrest um, right. and divisions in society. But justice is equally important. I think, you know, people can be given jobs, people can be given um, stimulus checks or, you know, grants and those things. But I think the underlying fundamental concern is about justice. It's about mm -hmm. whether people have equal opportunity um, and not just to get an income right, but to to sort of to self-actualize yeah. um, and to do work, to get the opportunity to do work that is meaningful to them, mm -hmm. right? And to sort of know that the broader economic or the broader um, environment provides room for that and doesn't mm -hmm. provide room for that for a select few. Um, yeah. And the idea of justice also, you know, includes accountability, you know, is there mm -hmm. accountability for those people who do rob those, um, who do rob the majority of opportunities to make mm -hmm. their own living and to self-actualize? Um, and when, you know, when you see a lack of accountability and a sense of injustice, um, you know, sort of people who contribute to um, the poor state of things, you know, corrupt mm. officials and um, inefficient bureaucracies and, you know, a seeming, a seeming air of apathy from the government, people mm. feel like that's injustice. People feel like mm. that's unjust and that radicalizes people. 
And I think especially in the context of South Africa, you know, the our historical um, our historical sort of narrative is, I think, the clearest example of that. You know, yeah. there's so much injustice in what happened in the past, but seeing the lack of accountability in the present day also just exacerbates the frustrations that people mm. have with the status quo. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think justice has a huge role to play in, you know, securing stability and, you know, social mm -hmm. cohesion. And I don't think that it gets enough attention. I think it's more of an afterthought, you know, when, yeah. you know, things have burned and people have been hurt. And then suddenly, you know, you have people coming out and saying we should involve the communities. We should involve mm -hmm. community leaders and dialogue. And this is something that we should be doing already. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, you definitely make a good point with that. And I think uh, if I sort of read it right, one of the things that are being considered to address something, at least to some extent, um, like this, is this idea of universal basic income. Mm. So do you think that this is doable and feasible for South Africa today? Right. So that's um, <laughs> my favorite question, because <laughs> I think... I think often, you know, the conversations around a universal basic income um, start off and usually the conversation ends on that note of is it doable, is it feasible? And I think mm -hmm. it's a very important question. Um, you know, the Institute of Economic Justice, um, I mentioned in the piece, has written yeah. an amazing, you know, uh, policy brief detailing the, you know, potential funding strategies and mechanisms that could make this feasible. Um, mm -hmm. And as it stands, it could be feasible. Um, I think the broader question is about whether it would be sustainable, given the mm -hmm. current, you know, the current economic trends, you know, the growing unemployment, um, which is resulting in the shrinking tax base, um, you know, the potential of, you know, capital flight if we introduce, you know, a wealth tax and all of these things. So as it stands, we could be in the position to implement universal basic income, but its longevity would rest on some really difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I said I think it's, you know, it's such a good question is because I think it's a great opening question, but I don't think it should be the only question that we ask. Right. Yeah. You know, there are broader considerations that I think are make an equally strong point for and against a UBI. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, how do we bring stability? You know, political, mm -hmm. social stability is very important to foreign investors. They want to know that yeah. there won't be disruptions if they bring their business. And so mm -hmm. it's almost as though by bringing about social stability and cohesion, you would be in some way making up for, you know, this these revenues that you think you'd be losing. Um, yeah. But you're promoting a, an environment that would be conducive for business, that would be attractive for business if, you know, the nation's largely coherent, cohesive <laughs> um, and stable, right? So yeah. it's it's all these trade-offs that we have to make um, and they're difficult yeah. decisions. They're they're definitely not easy. They're not straightforward, but yeah. it's it's a question that's worth that's worth dwelling on, given, you know, the, the very worrying economic situation in South Africa. Yeah, no, definitely. And I hear you on that. And it's, you know, it's the same for South Africa as it is in other places. And I think that's it's also part of the reason why sometimes we find ourselves in a bit of a bind because like the, the decisions that need to be made <laughs> are not mm. easy. 
They right. are difficult. Right. Some of them have you know, short-term political costs that some people may not find desirable because right. of either their own personal or party needs or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like there are some tough decisions that need to be made and we need exactly. people to actually make them. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty important. So you make a distinction, right, um, in your paper um, that t- between the youth in general as well as mm-hmm. those even in the demogra- uh, demographic who've never worked before. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the important distinction. I was wondering, can you expand a bit more on why distinction is, that distinction is necessary, especially when we are thinking about something like um, the UBI or, you know, however we decide to call it. Right. Um, I think, you know, the main worrying thing for me is, you know, having such widespread levels of precarity um, and vulnerability for I think specifically when we're looking at the youth demographic um, Mm -hmm. and you know the lack of room for recourse or the lack of room Mm -hmm. for support during that time of precarity I Mm -hmm. think you know in a lot of other countries throughout the world, when they think of youth and youth unemployment and youth benefits, um, social benefits for unemployed, un- unemployment is seen as a temporary condition yeah. um, and a short-term condition. And in South Africa, it's becoming a long-term condition for a lot of our young people. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, for you know, we have this idea of chronic youth unemployment and you know there's studies there's all sorts of studies that are showing that the longer you're unemployed for um the less likely you are to um find a job Mm -hmm. um, to be employed so that you know that has bearing and you know when you see that cycle and these long periods of time where people are without income Mm -hmm. it's it's quite worrying um yeah But it also means that if they haven't worked before, they haven't been able to, you know, or at least work formally, they also haven't been able to, you know, get make contributions towards the contributory scheme for unemployment benefits. Um, Mm -hmm. So they can't access that. And that's what, Mm -hmm. you know, the rest of the population would be able to tap into. But for young people, A, you wouldn't have had enough time to, you know, contribute to that um, to that scheme for it to be Mm -hmm. sustainable during the time that you're unemployed for. But Mm -hmm. also, you know, it's it's just this loophole where. Mm young people are left vulnerable for this period in their lives Um, and what's meant to be a temporary situation becoming prolonged means it's it's exacerbating their level of precarity and vulnerability um, and makes it harder for them to escape a poverty cycle so it's it's like this opportunity where intervention is most crucial and yet this is the demographic that has absolutely no safety social net whatsoever yeah yeah, no, definitely. Thank you for expanding on that. Um, so I think I, I want to go back to like the point we were speaking about just before this and this idea of sort of whether it's feasible, but maybe the emphasis, not necessarily emphasis, but you know, it should be a more a broader conversation, including mm. the longevity of having something like um, a UBI. I was just wondering, considering, you know, the pros, if I can call it that, and the cons, whether it's mm-hmm. a public that with capital, you know, investment, all of those things. Mm-hmm. How how do you have some ideas as to how we can start to reconcile some of these 
some of these things, right? Because they're valid mm-hmm. points on both sides. So how do we move forward with a conversation like this? And that's not to say that it absolutely must be done, absolutely should not be done. But in looking to move past the very elementary, if I can call it that, like pro and cons, right? what are some of the things that we should be thinking about, we should be talking about, and some of the debates that should be coming out about this? I don't know if you can share on some of those. Right, right. Um, so I think that, you know, the conversation about... Uh, a UBI is also the beginning of another conversation Um, Mm. and it's not you know an end per se I think it should Mm. be a means to an end as well Mm. I think it can be an end in itself um, and you know a demonstrative you know a demonstrative gesture from the government you know a a form of demonstrating solidarity and you know trying to um, foster social cohesion and all of those things Um, but it's not the end. And I think a lot of people are worried that, you know, the government might treat it as a one-stop solution um, or a band-aid to a bigger issue. Um, And what I think is a helpful way to look at this is that um, a basic income is meant to increase people's capacities and capabilities. So, you know, on the one hand, it's to manage poverty levels and to make sure that people aren't, you know, falling below that poverty line, Um, but also enabling people to, you know, focus or to be better situated to um, seek work um, or to, you know, build forms of livelihoods. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, the interventions need to be twofold in that sense right um they need to also be better positioning people to enter the work or the labor market um there's quite a bit of evidence in terms of um showing how you know a basic income uh, or cash transfers improve people's likelihoods to find jobs because Mm -hmm. you know there's at least food on the table in the household um and people can you know go out and seek work without you know jeopardizing um the the dynamics in the household of who's there who's able to provide food and the you know working for very um low wages just to cover yeah. food right so now you can sort of get people um you can get people sort of looking at uh other opportunities outside of that but I think, you know, if you look at programs like the public works programs, um, those are interventions that are part of social protections that are meant to be creating job opportunities. But the issue with those is that they're very short term. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, looking at creative ways to, you know, combine social protections. Um, so, you know, you've got public public works programs where people can work and gain skills. Um yeah but also having, you know, a little bit of money that's going to help boost their household consumptions. Um, often, you know, you find in South Africa that the the grants that people get go beyond the immediate needs that they're designed for. You know, you see it with the pensions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the pensions are meant for the elderly, but you find that those pensions are stretched. And this is something that, you know, low-income households are very yeah. good at doing, stretching... Yeah 
what seems like absolutely nothing or not much um, to go a little bit longer. And, you know, you find that those households will support unemployed members of the family or, you know, um, grandchildren that they may be caring for. And I think looking at the ways that, you know, it's it's not an ideal situation, but looking at the ways that a little bit of an income can help support even broader, um, you know, broader aims than what it's intentionally designed for is mm-hmm. is something that we need to we need to be looking into um, mm-hmm. and seeing how do we partner some of these interventions with real um sustainable sort of labor market interventions that aren't just providing short-term opportunities for work in order to you know support to support people out of these precarious places um Mm -hmm. so it's the coupling right it's the pairing and it's trying to optimize um what what may seem like very little to go a little bit further um, and to make people more resilient, I think. I think people are in a better position to look for work, um, to look for higher paying work if there's, you know, if they're in a better place to be more resilient. And you can't do mm-hmm. that if you're living below the poverty line. So mm-hmm. they they can work hand in hand in that in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I think more conversation needs to be had from, you know, the government to demonstrate that this is just a start. This isn't mm-hmm. this isn't the complete solution to mm-hmm. poverty and inequality. This is this is a measure yeah. to set a, a you know to set a benchmark um, yeah. and to equalize things a little bit, but definitely not the end. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a fantastic point. So what do you think Gugu is needed right now? Um, and it's a thing, a set of things, or, you know, you could still be trying to figure that out too, um, mm-hmm. to sort of reset politics in South Africa in a more positive direction. What does uh, South Africa need right now from your point of view? Sure. Big questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's there's a sense a common sense of you know a vacuum in south africa um for a type of leadership or voice within leadership um and this could be you know within uh the existing political parties it could be within you know within the dominant uh the current governing party um and perhaps even outside of party politics um there's need for a voice that is able to build bridges and that is able to unify i think there's a lot of um you know there's a lot of hot takes and there's lots of analyses and there's a lot of partisanship um and it's all of these silos right where these conversations are happening about building the country and unifying the country but i think what we do need right now is you know brokers of um of unity we need brokers of um collaboration and people who are mm-hmm. able to negotiate and you know bring people into the same space um and yeah people who are able to just nurture those relationships because like i said earlier there's so much disconnect um and partisanship tends to exacerbate that and for a long time we haven't been able to have you know people step outside of you know political figures outside of the you know party structures to step into that space and you know focus on 
bringing people into the same space. And it's quite interesting that, you know, the the Concord has um, recently ruled that we can have, you know, independent candidates in the um, in parliamentary and legislative um, elections. Hmm. Um, and I think and the local elections, I mean, I think it's really it's it's a promising move, you know, because a lot of people see parties as obstacles um, to unity, right? They see them as divisive and they see them as these things that, you know, people have to choose one of. And I think there's growing sentiment, especially among young people, of just not being able to relate to a lot of the parties that exist. And so perhaps moving a little bit away from partisanship might be the answer, um, or at least providing the opportunity for, um, you know, political figures to emerge outside of the party structures um, and hopefully to bring to bring parties together, to bring them a little bit closer so there's more collaboration because um, our problems are bigger than our parties. They're bigger than, yeah. they really are, they really are. Yeah, no, definitely. That's that's definitely a big point, a bold one too. And I mean, yeah. I think it's there's just so much credit to that. And a lot of you know countries where we find them stuck, usually between two alternatives. Mm. Um, and it's just like we need a little bit more, um, right? And we need right. to figure out how to get more out of them, or consider other options that would get us to where we need to be. Because if you consider some of the realities of the African continent, and the you know now and even in the you know, immediate foreseeable future. <laughs> it's mm. like a lot of decisions that need to have been made uh, yesterday. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we need to get moving. We need to make those tough decisions. So we need right. to figure out a way to get, you know, the populace, especially the young population, which is literally going to mushroom um, mm. to where they need to be and to have, to feel empowered, to be able to create for themselves um, and their families the lives that they deserve or believe they deserve. Right. Um, but anyway, thank you. Thank you so much. Before you go, though, I thought we mm -hmm. would speak briefly um, a bit about you and your trajectory so far. So I know quite a number of people that listen to this podcast are usually like young um, people coming up in the policy space. At least the people I've heard from. Um, mm -hmm. So I always find it useful when we can speak to that. So I believe there's, there's, there's a privilege, right, that comes with getting an education that's hands down. Mm. We can't debate that but right. also to be successful in that space it's not always a walk in the park <laughs> right <laughs> what did you believe or have to believe um, about yourself that you would say helped you become successful um, and deal with hard times throughout you know the course of your education uh, <laughs> it was quite recent well so <laughs> It's fresh, fresh. Let's so the go. flashbacks, you know, uh, are very real, <laughs> very vivid. Um, I think, you know, it's it's that what you've just mentioned, the acknowledgement of the privilege um, mm. to to be in that space, to receive that education, right? Um, and, you know, I was, I managed, uh, I was fortunate to uh, do my master's at the London School of Economics, which is incredibly prestigious, right? Um, yes. And it's, it, it just has a feeling of surrealty, right? You just constantly feel like, is it real? 
um, am I supposed to be here? You constantly have these questions and thinking like, am I the right person? Um, am I really as smart as they think I am? Or did I manage to trick all these people? So you have a lot of self-doubt, right? Yes, um, yes. But I think something that was interesting for me was realizing almost everybody around me was having those thoughts. <laughs> Even the people that I thought, you know, were sort of the cookie cut, uh, yeah, you know, idea, like the versions of exactly the versions of people who belong here, um, the people for whom like they don't have to think twice about, you know, being in those spaces. Um, but really, everybody yeah. experiences those doubts um, about, you know, mm -hmm. whether they are enough or whether they are going to be able to rise up to that challenge and I think yeah. realizing that it's a universal experience um questioning yeah. oneself and doubting oneself but it's it doesn't take away from the fact that it's such a unique privilege and that um mm -hmm. I think reflecting on that novelty of you know it's it's amazing that you're in that space um yeah. That's something that can give a lot of motivation and can give a lot of courage. I think that's something that I felt I initially had lacked in, but you develop yeah. it, right? You 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 gain that courage um, from continuously proving to yourself that you're you're good at this stuff. You know, you have a good contribution. Yeah. You have an, a a valuable contribution to make in these conversations um, by virtue of your individuality, mm -hmm. of your unique background, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Sure, we were all, you know, most of us were philosophers and we were, you know, top of our class and all of that and all of, you know, we check all the boxes to be in that space or, you know, to, um, to graduate from those classes. But my unique perspective as a South African who, you know, um, is from the Eastern Cape, from Johannesburg, that's not something that you're going to replicate, you know, every couple of, <laughs> you might get it every couple of, you know, every couple of 10 years. Um, but yeah, there's something amazing about that novelty. Um, and it's great to lean into it for, for that, for that self sense of self-motivation, I guess. Yeah, no, that's I am like all the claps and air snaps right here because <laughs> I can definitely speak to the number of times I was like, when when are they going to figure it out? Exactly, <laughs> they're going to catch me. <laughs> the mask is going to slip. <laughs> like it's coming. <laughs> right. Oh man, it, it, it is insane. But yeah, it's really just you know reminding yourself, assuring yeah. yourself that you're, you're meant to be here. You are the person for the job, and you can do it too. Exactly. Come this far. So okay. that, that's really important. So you've sort of just sort of started working in this space, but also you've done some previous, you know, internships in the past. From the experiences you've had so far in mm. your work, what would you say has made you successful at work? Or maybe if you want to speak more broadly, the people that you have seen as being successful, are there particular things that you'd say have has made them successful? Is there a common thread across those experiences? You can speak to yours, or you can speak more broadly, whichever you're more comfortable with. Right. Um, I think the biggest contributor um, to success that I've witnessed, I think even amongst some of my close friends, um, mm. is teachability, right? Mm -hmm. um, we've spent a lot of time and a lot of money in, you know, these institutions of uh, higher education, learning all of these theories and, you know, <laughs> 
mastering or perfecting um, some of the theoretical um, you know, backgrounds to the things, the spaces that we want to work in. But there's also just so much that, you know, the university can teach you um, mm. or that the internet can teach you. Um, and there's so much value. <laughs> there's so much value from, you know, being in a space with people who have spent years doing something. And I think yeah. the recognition that there's always something to learn from people who've been mm -hmm. doing something for a long time is, yeah. I think that's sort of the the most common um, the most common element um, amongst yeah. people that I've felt, you know, uh, gained a lot from their experiences in the workplace. Um, I think that's been mm -hmm. the same for me. Um, yeah. I, I I like to sort of listen and ask a bunch of questions and sometimes they're not directly linked to, you know, a specific project that I'm working on. Um, right. But it's just, you know, trying to suck all of that knowledge and, you know, we're Africans like this is this is how we learn. We pass down mm. stories um, from yeah. generation to generation and those stories still exist, you know, like mm. they may not be archived or written out. And I think it's the exact same in the workplace, there's so much knowledge that is just passed down from merely being in the same space as yeah. people who've walked that journey. And I think that goes that that goes a long way. Yeah, fantastic. So Google, in in terms of your career, right, moving forward, mm -hmm. or maybe even now, what would you say is your intention or set of intentions in terms of who Google is and who Google is trying to become? Mm. Oh, this is a tough question. Um, <laughs> and I think it's something that I've, you know, opened myself up to discovering in a yeah. more sort of organic way, um, mm -hmm. rather than sort of trying to determine that from the outset and then, you know, trying to um, align myself yeah. Uh, you know, in spaces that I think fit that initial idea. I yeah. think um, there's something that I heard on a on a webinar recently, and it's so the person was a philosopher by training as well. <laughs> and yeah. he said this thing, and I, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. But I know in other spaces, you know, some people might just not have it. Um, mm. And he said, and he said, um, Truth does not exist because everything is alive. Um, and oh. what he was talking about, what he was referring to was, you know, the openness of meaning and how meaning constantly evolves. Um, and, you know, the multiplicity of ways of interpreting things um, yeah. and just discovery, right? You know, the the openness to new discoveries that could change the ideas that we have before, right? That's pretty much how science works. Um, all of the information we've had about vaccines has been, you know, an interesting ride for those of us who are not scientists. Yeah. But you realize <laughs> that you have to open yourself up to new evidence, new experiences yeah. um, that could initially change some of, you know, the truth that you hold as fundamental. Um, and I think that's been my approach to, you know, what's, what the ultimate goal is or what I'm trying to achieve. I think it's mm -hmm. various iterations um, and it's 
essentially rooted in, you know, what's what's the positive contribution that we can make um, mm-hmm. to, you know, providing access or increasing access and increasing opportunity um, mm. for all people, right? In a way that, um, in a way that brings us closer together, but also that just increases our awareness um, yeah. of the challenges that may not be in our immediate eyesight. You know, yeah. it's it's I think ultimately about that. Um, yeah. And, oh. you know, what space it that's going to be in, that's an ever-evolving thing. You know, it, it's, mm. you know, the policy space, it's in, you know, the civil society space, it's in, it could be anywhere. And I think those are the different iterations mm. that contribute to what that's going to look like ultimately. Yeah. Love it. Gugu, thank you so much. That was fantastic. And it's been an absolute pleasure sharing this space with you today. Thank you for making the time. Um, thank you very much. Definitely thank you for having me. For the podcast that we did. Yeah. So I hope you have a lovely weekend and stay well. Thank you so much. You too, Marino. And it's a wrap. Thank you all so much for listening. As Google mentioned, this is just a start of a much broader conversation around the utility and feasibility of a universal basic income grant for South Africa. What do you think? Share your thoughts with us, interact with us on social media across channels on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, at the Brenters Foundation. I hope you have a wonderful day and catch you on the next episode. Stay safe.